Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to part two of the Manson family cult. We're going to go ahead and dive into the other half of this week's topic. Okay, I'm going to be talking about like the investigation and the trial and all that other shit that comes after essentially the deed itself. On August 9th, 1969, the Tate murders, which at that point it's become known as the Tate murders, became national news. And they were discovered by Pulaski's housekeeper, Winifred Chapman. She arrived to work and basically walked in on a fucking murder scene, which, let's be honest, that would be fucking insane. I would not be okay with that. I'd be very like, eh, okay, I'm not cleaning. So, and that, that this is the same day that, you know, they go over to the La Biancas and do the killing. So it's like, it's a very short window of time. The first person that is held in question is the groundskeeper. His name is William Gerritsen because he lived in the guest house and um, he was hired by like a kind of like a friend of the families or something like that to take care of the property while the actual like groundskeeper was away. So Stephen Parent, who was found in his car, who was like the first victim they like really the police really found was visiting him he was leaving and that's when bad things happened so with garretson he was taken in but he was released on august 11th because they they gave him a polygraphs test and it indicated that he had not been involved with the crimes now he claimed he never heard anything he never witnessed anything anything he said that his stereo was on and it was the stereo was on it was really loud he couldn't hear anything however the polygraph did indicate that he had witnessed portions of the murder. Oh, wow. And if he, he, of course, denied it. And then he later came out and made a public statement, I think, because uh, he died in 2016. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that he came out later in life and said, yep, I actually witnessed part of it. Oh, fuck. Right. And so and I could understand like why if you were in his position, you'd be fucking scared to say anything because Mm -hmm. the very first thing they do is put you in handcuffs. They take you in and he took a polygraph test and he passed it. So he's like, I don't have to say anything because then again, at this point, they don't know who's committed these murders. And my personal theory is once he realizes who committed the murders, he's not going to say, yeah, I saw them because people had a tendency to disappear around Charlie Manson. Yep. So if you didn't agree with him and you'll find out one of the a lawyer later didn't agree with them and um, he just stopped coming to work one day. Oh, I'm not surprised. This is like the time where it's kind of like I feel like they didn't question it as much. Because people would just mm-hmm. up and leave or wander or move. But it's like, mm, I don't know. But this was a lawyer in like a high profile case and he just didn't come to work anymore. Right. And there was no explanation of it. 
So on August 10th, the detectives from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, they took over and they were actually involved with the the Hinman case, which is one of the other previous Manson murders. And there was like writing on the wall in that house as well. But they were like, oh, no, this is just a coincidence. It's drag related. This has nothing to do with each other. And it's like, you're fucking wrong. So wrong. So the La Biancas, the crime scene was discovered on August 10th and it was at 1030 at night. Rosemary's son, who was 15, his name was Frank, I'm going to say this probably wrong, Struthers. Um, It was a son from like a previous marriage, you know, and they were pretty like it was said that they were a good family. And he came home and all the windows were like all the shades were drawn. And he thought that was weird because I guess they just that's not what they did. And his dad's boat or the stepdad's boat was like still attached to the family car. And the stepdad, Lino, um, never, that was something that never happened. Like, he always made sure it got put up, if not that day or the next day. Um, So he got scared, so he called his sister, and his sister and her boyfriend, whose name is Joe Dargon, came over, and they discovered Lino's body first, and then they called the police, and the police actually found Rosemary's body. Oh. Mm-hmm. So on August 12th, LAPD told the press that they ruled out any connections between the Tate and LaBianca murders. They're fucking wrong. Totally fucking wrong. Yeah. On August 16th, the sheriff's department raided um, the Spawn Ranch and arrested Manson and 25 others as part of like a suspicion of a car theft. And this is not his like last time this is going to happen to him. So essentially what they would do is they would um, go steal Volkswagen Beetles from around the area, and then they would turn them into dune buggies. Mm-hmm. And then that they would sell the dune buggies. They also seized, when they went out there, they seized like a shit ton of weapons, but they all got released a few days later because the warrant was misstated. Oh, yeah. I remember, like, I remember hearing about that one because I was listening to some documentaries and stuff. Jesus Christ. By a little technicality. Right. And this is like, I bet they're like thick. Mm-hmm. So a breakthrough came because... They were still working separately. And in mid-October, they were like, okay, maybe these are kind of related. They're very similar. So maybe we should like put them at least side by side. And that's when they learned of the previous, like all parties, including like LAPD and LA Sheriff's Department. They learned of the Hinman case, the Tate case, and then the LaBianca case. And then the detectives that were working on the Hinman case, they were speaking with one of their suspect's girlfriends. Her name was Kitty Lutzinger, and she had been arrested the few days earlier with the Manson family. Mm -hmm. So then they were like, okay, there's something here. And then they had to like go in and and like really research it. So they wanted to go out again and essentially like round these people up for this. But they had kind of left Spawn Ranch and moved to a place in Death Valley. And so they had to like find it. And then it was like literally coordinating with different like departments because. They had to get, like, the Highway Patrol, and I think it's pronounced N.O. County Sheriff's Department. They had to get federal, state, and county personnel all involved because they were going out to this place um, because the Manson family was at the Myers and the Baker Ranch. So essentially, they were, like, they weren't so good about hiding where they were. These people were, like, fucking, like, they'd brag about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were bragging in jail when they were in jail for not murders. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. 
So they they go out and they raid again. And this time they get two dozen people, including Manson. And this is Tara's favorite little tidbit. Ah, yes. So they're at the (laughs) Barker's Ranch. And Highway Patrolman is like, where the fuck is Charles Manson? Like, he's like the leader of this. They couldn't find him. And I don't even know, like, I think he might have moved or something, or they just were, like, going through everything. And they open this tiny ass, and we'll we'll post a picture, this tiny ass cabinet under a sink. And Charlie is just curled up in a ball. And, like, when they open the door, he's just smiling. He's like, hi, I'm here. I fucking can't. I, ugh. Oh, no, it's, it's fucking comical. Essentially, what happens is that they... They they are starting to suspect because of like what Lutzinger is saying that there is some involvement amongst all of like these murders. And then there was also another group of individuals. Manson was like, we need bodyguards. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go get bikers to be our bodyguards because there's nothing better than a combination of hippies and bikers. Right. That doesn't look weird at all. It's fine. No, I would have been like, okay. So they were like, okay. So what ended up happening is... Susan Atkins. Mm-hmm. Oh, Susan. She um was arrested during the whole like roundup of of people. And she was basically like a little like off her rocker. So they put her in like a different one. She was in the Sybil Brand Institute. It was a detention center in Los Angeles. And she began to brag to her roommates, Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, about how she had been involved with the Hinman murders, the Tate murders, and the LaBlanca murders. So, and they were, and she's like, you're not going to tell, right? And of course, they were like, teacher, teacher, pick us. Hey, listen. (laughs) Yeah, like, bitch killed them. So they've been like indicted and implicated in these murders. And Sharon is just, or not Sharon, um, Susan Adkins is just like super proud of herself. She's fucking nuts. Like, look at her pictures. She is. Oh my God. Like, I, I looked up her mugshot. She's crazy. Mm-hmm. It scared me. I had to click off. I couldn't do it. It's like just as bad as Charlie's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on December 1st, 1969, acting on the information uh, from LAPD and others, they served arrest warrants for Watson and then Kernwinkle and um, Caspian in the Tate case and suspects involved in the LeBlanc murders. Manson and Adkins were already in custody and were not mentioned and then also they put out there because Von Houghton was not in custody yet. So they put out there like she's, you know, she needs to turn her ass in. Mm-hmm. So Watson and Kernwinkle were caught actually in different states. Okay. Tex was caught in McKinley, Texas, and Kernwinkle was caught in Mobile, Alabama. And they were like basically like the LAPD had put out like a national bolo on these bitches and they got caught real quick. Good. And then Caspian was like home, like had gone back to New Hampshire. She just, she turned herself in. She felt really, really bad. Gotcha. Well, fucking, you should. <laughs> oh, I, I misspoke. I want to correct something. So Von Houghton was actually caught in the the chaos at the Death Valley, like, roundup. So she was already in custody. Gotcha. Okay. So all these arrests and everything were happening with the murders in December of 1969. But in September of 1969, they found the gun that was involved because... Essentially, they had put out that there was like a it was a 22 caliber and it was just like special. It was like a high standard blunt line special revolver. And a local kid, he was like 10 years old, found it and told his dad and his dad called the cops. 
Yeah, that was the thing with these fucking investigations. Oh, yeah. That kid and then, like, reporters found shit. It wasn't even the cops that found so much of the evidence. Oh, yeah, like, like the bloody clothes were, their bloody clothes were found by, like, an ABC TV crew. Yeah, I was watching one of the, like, a CNN special thing on YouTube, and it had one of the original reporters. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, she was just talking about all that, how, like, they found all this shit and all this stuff. And it was like, what the fuck were the cops doing? What the fuck? (laughs) I mean, granted, this was, like, in 1969, and there was a lot of, like, tension that was Mm -hmm. happening. There was a lot of crimes, like, you know, like, as far as... Just there was a lot of crime happening, I I think. And I think they had their hands full and they were like, well, we don't know who these people are. And then as soon as they kind of found it, everyone else just stepped right in. However, Susan Adkins, she's a stupid bitch. I'm going to tell you. Like, Mm -hmm. so they never found the knives that they used, except for the one that Susan Adkins used. Yeah. Because bitch lost it while she was fighting someone. And so it was like under a cushion. (laughs) in the couch and they were like oh here's a knife with their prints on it so um you know she she's gonna go so la la county was like we're gonna fucking try this we're going for the death penalty we're gonna get these motherfuckers Mm -hmm. and they were like we're gonna do it quick and i i feel like now things like this take forever like if you look at the stephen avery case out of like wisconsin or Mm -hmm. wherever that is it took it, it felt like it took years for them to get to trial you know, and now it's like so that they discovered they were arrested in December of 1969 and in June of 1970, June 15th, we exact they the trial begins. So it's like not a lot of time. Right. So the prosecution's main witness is Caspian. And then it's so weird because like mm-hmm. so she was being charged, obviously, even though but I think she was getting like a lesser sentence for participation. Right. But then it was Manson and Adkins and Van Van Houten and Kernwinkle were all charged with like seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. But since Caspian um, participated in all of the killings, but she was willing to give testimony, she was granted immunity in exchange for, mm-hmm. for that testimony in detail. And she had to like say in detail. Later on, she tried to like change it. Here's the weird thing. Even though she's giving testimony and she's telling on Charles, she's still like, I love him. He is a good man. Shit just got crazy. These people are fucking nuts. So, and then Atkins, that crazy bitch, tried to make a deal with the DA saying, like, I'll testify against everyone if you take the death penalty off. And then they were like, no, just kidding. We hate you. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Right. So, and Van Houten was only charged with two counts of murder and one conspiracy because she only stabbed Rosemary. Mm-hmm. But she's literally being tried for both deaths because she was there. Yeah. Which, yeah. So then here's something that, of course, all serial killers like to do. Represent themselves. Of course. Why wouldn't he? Hello. He's Jesus. Because literally when he got arrested, <laughs> it was Charles Manson, a.k.a. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So he, the judge, it was Judge William Keene, reluctantly granted Manson permission to act as his own attorney, but because Manson's conduct included violations of the gag order, and of course he was like submitting like outlandish and nonsensical like pre-child motions, they were like, uh, you can't represent yourself because this is a fucking waste of time, which is the like, very big right. common theme throughout this. This whole trial <laughs> is just like fucking insanity. Like, the whole shit that happened. Yeah. So, essentially, because of this, Charles, the one thing that he did right is he had an affidavit 
to say like that Keene was being prejudiced and then he got a new judge which which is Judge Charles H. Older and on July 24th the first day of testimony and Manson appeared in court and this is when he had the fucking X carved into his forehead and he issued a statement what that was said to be considered inadequate and incompetent to speak or defend himself and had X'd himself out from the established world. And then because at the same time, oh, by the way, they made LA decided to like, you know what? We're not going to try these all separately, which happens in a lot of cases that they would try each individual and then they could like turn on each other. No, they're like, you know what? You four, it was Manson, Adkins, Van Houten, and Kernwinkle. We're going to try you all together, which was kind of a bad decision because they had one representation, essentially. They needed to all communicate, which this gave Charles the opportunity to manipulate the women even further because so he does the whole fucking X on his forehead come Monday morning in court. All the women do it. Yeah, even fucking there's pictures of Ruth Ann with it on her head, too. Oh, no, they all like all his followers. And at some yeah. point, essentially what was happening is that at the beginning of the trial, his like fam- the family was allowed to come to the trial because it's a public thing. You can go. But they were so disruptive that basically <laughs> they uh, got like a court order and was like you can't fucking it was basically subpoenaed that they couldn't come in unless they were witnesses so the prosecution argued that the triggering of helter skelter was manson's main purpose here it was his main motive and that um he wanted to start a race war which is why he wrote pig and like rise and helter skelter and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. i was watching a documentary about this and his goal was and i think one of the girls was telling the story is that what he wanted to have happen was that they would incite this race war then they would like disappear out into the desert and then all of the black people would kill the white people and then he would come in and then overtake the black people. Mm-hmm. And he said some very racial things, which I'm not going to say. But then he would then be the new world order, essentially. I had several questions. Like, one, if they've already killed all the other white people. Why are they going to leave you alive? <laughs> what makes you think that you can kill them if they killed everyone else? Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's my first question. Charles, no, don't come near me. He never thought anything through. So, I mean, come on, you know. Oh, no. And I think that's why, like, when you talk about him as, like, a person, like, there's a reason he sleeps with 14, 15-year-old girls is because Mm -hmm. he doesn't see a consequence to it. He thinks it's totally fine and that that there isn't another step. And I think that's, like, a true – like, he was truly a sociopath in that aspect. That, like, Mm -hmm. he never – there was never a consequence to his actions. And, like, later in life, like, the older he got, the more rambling he got. Right. So he would say things like, you can't tell – like, there was one time at a parole hearing, he's like, do I regret it? what regret maybe not regretting that i killed i only killed like seven people and not like three four hundred people and then he was like but i didn't kill anyone because i think like he was still lucid enough sometimes to be like oh shit i just admitted shit right he's like oh let me backtrack let me backtrack but it's like charles we already knew you did it right exactly like it's no fucking surprise you're in prison hello Mm mm-hmm So essentially, because his followers, the family couldn't come inside, they would like sit outside of the courthouse and basically hold vigils and like talk to reporters. And they were said to be very nice. And for the most part, like there were some people that are little dicks, but for the most part, they were really nice. And they but they all carved that fucking X into their head. And then at some point when he shaves his head, the girls shave their head and then every one of the other followers shave their head. Oh, Jesus. Right. So here's the thing. 
even though he was in prison going to trial, even though he Mm -hmm. is being convicted of these murders and is not out, Charles Manson still had heavy influence over his family. Oh, yeah. Obviously, like if they're fucking showing up with the exes and shaving their heads and all of that shit. So Paul Watkins. So essentially what happened is since he was going to like turn on Manson, all of a sudden he was badly burned in a suspicious fire that was in his van. What? Mm hmm. And then former. Right. It gets better. Oh, my God. Former family member Barbara Hoyt um, had overheard Susan describing the Tate murders to another family member that was Ruth Ann Morehouse and agreed to accompany Morehouse to Hawaii. Morehouse allegedly gave her a hamburger spiked with several doses of LSD and they basically found Hoyt like sprawled on a curb in Honolulu in a like a semi drugged stupor and had she had to be hospitalized and she didn't really know who she was and the and then finally when they figured it out they figured out that she was um, a witness in the Tate LaBianca murders but then um, she here's the thing. I want to like Barbara Hoyt. If you're out there, you're living your life. I want to say this. Good for you. Most people would have been like, you know what? I'm going to shut the fuck up. No, she was like, "Uh uh-uh. You fucking left me to die on the streets of Honolulu. I'm going to fuck you over. And she was like, she was like, went back and testified with like a vengeance. Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty sure she's probably not Barbara Hoyt anymore. And she's, you know, in witness protection, which good for her. Good for her for getting out. Yeah. (laughs) Good for her. So here's the thing. On August 3rd of that year, 1970, Richard Nixon basically declared that Manson was guilty. And Manson brought it into court and held up the headline because when you're on a jury, you're sequestered. So you don't know what's happening. So essentially, he broke the law because he showed them (laughs) like relevant information mm-hmm. right and he, he basically was trying to say like how can i get a fair trial if even the president is saying i'm guilty well it's because you're fucking guilty yeah i was like it, it doesn't matter bro you're fucking you did it right but the judge was like you know what i think this is fine this is a stunt that you pulled they don't know the legitimacy of it because obviously they're not reading the la times because they're sequestered mm-hmm. later that year Manson was denied the court's permission to question a prosecution witness whom the de- his defense refused to cross-examine. And then he leaped over the defense table and tried to attack the judge. Mind you, he's only 5'3". So he's my size. He's Tara's size. Yeah, he's a tiny little man. Like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, he had to be wrestled to the ground and removed. And he was removed from the courthouse. And... Uh, at that point in time, all three of the women who were the defendants as well, like, they stood up and started chanting in Latin. Of course they did. Jesus. So from what I'm getting of this is that they would meet in the morning and Manson would be like, okay, I'm going to do this and then you do that. And this is kind of where, like, the gospel by Manson started to fall apart for a lot of these people. Right. Because the one thing that he would say is, I'm just all about the truth. Like, we got to get people out there. We got to get the truth out. And guess what? He's asking them to lie. Because he's asking them to mm-hmm. say, like, he he didn't tell them to go, you know, to Sharon Tate's house and kill people. He didn't tell the girls to go with Tex and do what he says. That they just did it on their own. That he is not culpable for any of this. And they're like, of course, they love him. So they're like, well, we need to protect him. But I think this is where they're like, yeah, 
I don't know if I believe him. No, homie. Right? (laughs) So on November 16th, the prosecution rests. Three days later, the fucking defense rests without calling a single fucking witness. Of course, they, like, cross-examined all of, like, the prosecution's witness, but that's still, like, oh, God. So... They didn't want the the three girls, the Manson girls, to testify because all they would do is get up there and talk about how innocent he was because that's what they said they would do. Right. But this is where, like, Van, it's Kern Van Winkle said, I don't think it's Van Winkle. I just made that up. <laughs> uh, Kern Winkle said in a documentary in 1987 that the entire proceedings were scripted by Charlie. Like, the entire thing. The next day, Charles Manson testified, because you're allowed to to speak for yourself and testify for yourself. But they asked the jury to leave. And (laughs) because he basically was, like, saying that the girls did it. Jesus. That they did it and he was it. And he goes, and this is one of the statements he made. He said, the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. To be honest with you, I don't ever recall saying, get a knife, a change of clothes, and go do what Tech says. But you did. Right. And all three of them were like, this is what he told us to do, which is why we did it. Because he said it. And he's like, I don't fucking say that. (laughs) Which is weird because all Charles Manson wanted to do was be in prison because that's all he knew. So it's like, just go back. Right. But I think what it was is that the de- they were seeking the death penalty. Yeah, he didn't want that. So here is where one of the fun things happened. So at the co- during closing arguments, their defense attorney, I think his name is, let me make sure. Yeah, Ronald Hughes fucking disappears. Right. Oh, my God. Just nope. Gone. Bye. Toodles. It was said that he pissed off Charles and um, he wouldn't when he wouldn't let the girls testify. Or something happened and he was pissed about it. They later found his body badly decomposed in Ventura County stuck between two boulders. Oh, my God. So some other people fucking took him and left him. Yeah, it's rumored, although it has never been proven, that Hughes was murdered by the family, possibly because he stood up to Manson and refused to allow Van Houten to take the stand and absolve Manson of the crimes. I believe it. I believe it. Right. So essentially, they're found guilty. And they're given the death penalty. Mm -hmm. But luckily for these little bitch faces, um, the death penalty was overturned by the California Supreme Court. So it was it was life imprisonment until they die. So then they just got fucking life in prison. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. And here's the thing. I'm pretty sure that Sarah or Sandra Good, who I, I think you talked about a little bit. She was one of like the main people in Manson's life. She was like, she loved him. Like she, they made a documentary after Mm -hmm. and she was part of it. And um, like she would say like, if you have to kill someone, you just kill someone and then just move on in life. Yeah, because that's what sane people do. It's no big deal. It's literally out there, but you're going to want to hold on to her. Oof. So in 1969, Watson was actually, he was tried separately because there was like the extradition laws from, um, Texas, because where he was caught. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he essentially was caught and sentenced to death as well. But of course, because he's in California, he doesn't get killed because of that. Of course not. Right. 
So all the parties, because of the overturn with the People versus Anderson, their death penalty automatically reduces to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. Jesus fuck. Mm-hmm. So Charles Manson ended up at San Quentin, which, thank God, because he basically became like he was temporarily accepted with the Aryan Brotherhood. And um, <laughs> his role was a submissive to be a sexually aggressive member of the group. So essentially, I'm pretty sure he was getting butt raped. Well, good for him. <laughs> yeah, good for him. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, they all lived out their lives. And there was like a couple more murders that happened that we can talk about at a later date. But we do have to talk about one thing. And I got to find it because it's fucking interesting. So remember Squeaky? Yep. So Squeaky McGee over there. She actually, her last name is not McGee, just so people know it's like from or something like that. Yeah. She attempted an, uh, the assassination of President Gerald Ford. (laughs) I literally died when I read that. Here in Sacramento, he was visiting and he was walking from the governor's mansion to the state capitol. Like with I I, either like I don't really know. Like I I knew about the story a long time ago. She snuck up behind him and tried to shoot him. Right. And failed horribly. Yeah. Like I don't even think she got a shot off. But because of that, that's a federal offense. So they locked her up and she went to um she went to West Virginia. Uh, she actually moved, she was in Sacramento to begin with because at that time Manson was in Folsom Mm -hmm. and this was in 1975. And so she moved here to be closer to him. And then she went and tried to kill him, which was, she was already making like death threats and shit like that against him. So it's like, okay. Yeah. Like, okay. People should have been watching her anyways, but this was the seventies. She actually attempted to break out of prison. Oh, it says in December of 1987, from serving life sentence for the assassination attempt, escaped the federal prison camp Anderson in West Virginia because she was trying to reach Manson because she heard he had testicular cancer. She was apprehended within days. (sighs) Winners. She was released on parole in August of 2009. Shut the fuck up. I not make this up. Oh, my God. So in January of 1996, the Manson website was launched. And essentially, it was put to help out Sandra Good because she was in prison for a whole other reason. But July 25th of 1999, on like E! News or whatever, that's when William um, Gerritsen, the housekeeper, came out and said that he that he had seen and heard portions of the Tate murder from the location in the property's guest house. This corroborated the unofficial story that the polygraph results gave. But, you know, and then he later died, which is very sad. Yeah. In early 2008, Susan Adkins um, was diagnosed and it was announced that she had brain cancer. And I don't know if you remember this, but this is a big fucking deal because she was asking for compassion so that she didn't have to die in prison. Mm -hmm. And rightfully so, they denied her ass. Good. Yeah, I remember that. So they denied her ass, and then after that all happened and everything, it was her 18th parole attempt, and that happened on September 2nd, 2009, and she died September 24th in the Chowchilla Women's Prison. Oh, wow. Oh, remember Barbara Hoyt, the one who got poisoned and left? Uh Uh-huh. She said that she had to leave the family because she knew they would keep trying to kill her. I mean, she ain't wrong. (laughs) 
Right. They also threatened her family and other things as well. So Charles Manson, he died of a heart attack and complications of colon cancer in no- on November 19th, 2017. He was 83 years old. Jesus, that fucker lived a long time. Right. Because like these happened when he was like under 40. So he was in prison yeah. for like over 40 years. Now, Leslie Van Houten, she had a complete change of heart in prison. Hmm. She realized the role that she played in it. Granted, I would say that she didn't really commit a murder, more of a mutilation of a corpse at that point. Because unless Mm -hmm. Rosemary was still alive, which I don't know. I hope not. Me too. So she did a lot of soul searching. And she realized that she had been manipulated. And she talks about like how Charlie manipulated them. Which is that like they would she's like every day was like Halloween. We'd go out and we'd play and you would have to be a different character. So she's like you could be a pirate or a cowboy or something because they were at the, you know, the spawn ranch and it was like had all this stuff there. And she's like it kind of when you look back on it, it was like every day you were a little bit less like yourself. Mm. So like disassociated with uh, reality, honestly, not giving them excuses. But yeah, right. No, no, no. And she said, like, at least once to twice a day, if not more, Charles would walk up to them and, like, put his hands, like, make them touch hands, like, palms. And then he would, like, do things with his hands and they were supposed to mimic him. And then he would make faces at them and they were supposed to mimic his faces. So it was not only it was like he he brainwashed them by disassociating themselves with who they really were, but then also teaching them how to like mimic and mirror him so that when he essentially was like, I want you to do this, it was just second nature that they would do it for him. And I think that's kind of where he lies is that he was such a manipulator that it's insane. Ugh, yeah, I just don't I don't get it. But I don't see the like the draw. But he just he was good at what he did, I guess. Well, like you said earlier, it's these, it was men and women who felt like they didn't belong in society and Charles never fit in society. So he was like, look, I've had this rough life. You're having kind of a rough moment in life Mm -hmm. because he, he said that he went after middle class girls and above. Mm -hmm. So he would find them in these like vulnerable moments. And then because like Leslie Von Houten's said like my parents never talked about shit like they didn't talk about stuff right so suddenly here's this man who wants to talk about everything i don't know i just it was it was very interesting he was very smart about it he always picked the ones that like like what was her name um i think it was lynette who like who he met at the bench and he's like i knew she'd come as soon as i was like okay you don't have to bye he knew she would follow so Oh, yes, most definitely. And it's because, like, he would say to them everything they wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And he was such a good manipulator that he could, like, look at a person and, like, and they all said it, like, he could narrow in on what you needed. Yeah. And he provided that. And so since Charlie never had a family because he was literally, like, the son of a prostitute, didn't know who his dad was, raised in a reform school, in and out of juvie, in and out of prison, essentially until he was, like, what, 30-something? You know, Mm -hmm. he essentially had no formative years that taught him love and compassion. So he's like, I'm going to make it myself. And everyone was talking about like what love is in the 60s because it was the hippie love. And I think he just was like, what love is, is that I tell you what to do and you do it. Yeah. And they just accepted it because that they they didn't know love either. So they just took it for what it was. And I think a lot of it, it was like people were in that like rebellious state like Mm -hmm. their early 20s like we went through that like 
I'm my own person. I'm going to do what I want. And I could see how that would be if you were really sheltered. Right. How that would be a very easy thing to fall in love with because it's this like being sheltered is also like a it's its own like cage that you have to live in. Mm -hmm. And he offered them like endless amounts of joy. And the way that people describe him was that he was always happy. Right. And that's why people wanted to be around him is because he was so happy. And why wouldn't you want to be around the happiest man on the planet? (laughs) Well, because he's fucking nuts. But you know, but they were it was they were too close to that picture to actually see that. Yeah. I mean, definitely. That's how I viewed it, at least. And then Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that we kind of touched on earlier that I watched in a lot of the documentaries was that and you said that he wanted to appear that he was godlike mm-hmm. was that he never was in, as inebriated as those around him right and a lot of the women that i watched that were in this interview they were like i don't remember him taking a hit of lsd or taking acid or things like that you know mm-hmm. he just knew how to manipulate and it just turned really really bad killed a lot of people and you know at least he finally died that's the good thing i guess for so long after though i know he fucking lives so long that pisses me off. But hey, you know. Right. It's not even like the, um, like, you know, in the Chris Watts case where it's like, we know he's going to suffer being alive. Charles Manson didn't give a fuck. Oh, no. No, like, he he relished it. Like, uh-huh. his parole here, like, okay, so most people want to go to their parole hearing. Right. He would just be like, yeah, I'm good. I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And they, like, would mm-hmm. either have to, like, bring him here or he would be like, I just want to be because like when Charles Manson went to his parole hearing, they filmed it because it's fucking Charles Manson. Yeah. He would just spout nonsense or craziness because they get allowed to say their piece. And then he'd be like, I'm done. Okay, bye. You guys can make up your mind. Mm -hmm. Going back to my hole. And he knew they're not letting me out. I mean, I think sometimes he was disillusioned that he thought he was going to get out. Like, you could tell that that was the day he made up his mind that he was getting out of prison and that he was going to say things that they were going to listen to that was going to make sense. And he was preaching his, like, message. And then they're like, uh, you're talking about killing more people. Yeah. No, bitch. Not you. Why would we let you out? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up here with charles manson and his family and you thought your family was dysfunctional right shit there you go (laughs) makes feel better about yourselves (laughs) you're welcome right we hope you guys enjoyed this episode uh like we said earlier if you want to come hang out on any of our social medias you can click on the link tree in the show notes we have a patreon all of that good stuff come hang out with us so yeah we will go ahead and catch you guys next time bye Bye.